The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I think it's about, you know, these goals and ambitions that we try to achieve with foreign policy and with refugee admissions and how those goals and ambitions actually translate to the people that are trying to act upon it. You know, one thing we've heard a lot when people talk about the SIV program is, in, in theory, it represents some of the best that, you know, immigration policy can offer. It's an opportunity for people who have, you know, worked with us uh, abroad to accomplish goals. And this is an opportunity for them to come to the U.S. and sort of sort of further that goal. But of course, in practice, it, it works very differently. So I think it's about taking these, these big goals and ambitions, you know, in the policy and, and sort of in the bureaucracy and seeing how we actually sort of shape up to that in practice. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 17th, 2022. Bryce Clem is an associate editor at Lawfare. Max Johnston is a creative producer at Goat Rodeo. Together, they are the creators of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo's newest podcast series, Allies, which launched yesterday and covers the history of the Special Immigrant Visa Program in Afghanistan. It's an amazing story. It covers a lot of time, a lot of action, a lot of people, all through the lens of the effort, legislative and administrative, to get Afghan translators visas to come to the United States to protect them from Taliban retaliation. They joined me in Goat Rodeo Studios to talk about the creation of the podcast, how you take a wonky visa program and turn it into drama, and we bring you, in full, episode one of Allies. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 17th, Allies. So this is the first podcast series we have ever done that I have been this distantly involved with, which is to say I was in some sense the editorial supervisor of it. I okayed it. I've consulted with you guys as need be, but I didn't write it. I didn't do any of the interviews. I have had, you know, other than reviewing scripts, I haven't had a a sort of deep editorial role in it. So, Bryce, I want to start with you. How did you oust me as editor-in-chief of Lawfare and produce this uh, podcast without me? Well, uh, first of all, I'll say I haven't successfully fully ousted you uh, from Lawfare. Hopefully that'll happen You've just kicked me upstairs. Exactly, exactly. But, um, you know, back in October when you came to the team and said, we're doing more, you know, podcast series with Goat Rodeo and, you know, what should our next one be? I had really been thinking a lot about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which at that point had happened, you know, just a couple weeks before. And I wanted to find a vehicle or some device to begin to unpack America's 20-year involvement in Afghanistan. And previously at Lawfare, you know, you had let me interview a few people on this special immigrant visa program for Afghan interpreters and translators. And as I thought more about it and what a potential narrative series could look like, it seemed like, I don't want to say the perfect vehicle to, to you know, go through the war in Afghanistan, but it really, you know, touched on so many different themes throughout the broader war because interpreters and translators the whole time were really the face of the war. So when I came and pitched it to you, I, you know, had a, a pretty clear idea of, of what I wanted to do. And 
I think, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that helped in, in you sort of giving us, Max and I, the reins on the show. Yeah, so my reservation about the show, which uh, you will remember, was that, you know, people hear the word special immigrant visa and immediately lose the will to live. And so, Max, you're the sort of goat rodeo side of, of this collaboration. What's the strategy to when you take something that, you know, has a really technical name, it's actually part of immigrant visa, you know, which itself immigration is a, a rabbit hole of policy. But the story behind it is electrifying and fascinating and full of human drama and laced together with this period of real failure in the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. What's the strategy that you use as a producer to to get around that problem and uh, and to to you know I I think my strategy was I when I okayed it I said okay but you're never allowed to say the word special immigrant visa in any of the promotional material beyond that what 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 did you do to tell the story yeah well the first thing was we didn't use the term special immigrant visa or SIV in the trailer right and but specifically I think what we did was we tried to frame you know this narrative about politics about policy around like very intimate human sort of human facing stories, right? Talk about the literal life or death stakes of this policy of, you know, of the political and sort of bureaucratic mechanisms that we're talking about. So I think every episode of the show is generally opens, you know, framed around one specific person's experience with this program or a part of it, or how they sort of got introduced to it, how they learned about it. And sort of through looking at the SIV and broader sort of U.S. foreign policy and specifically the war, looking at it through the lens of the interpreters, the translators, the people that interacted with it on, you know, a sort of a face-to-face level and the impact it had on them, right? Trying, trying to illustrate what this bureaucracy looked like through people that are, you know, filing documents and paperworks, you know, that are not in their native language, right? And just the, the, the hurdles that that presents on a very human level. So I think a lot of it, and Bryce and I talked a lot about this early on, was like the focus and specificity of this story, right? It's a, it's a large program that's tied into refugee admissions, and we can spend hours just talking about that in and of itself, but really honing in on the human impacts of that. Okay, what does this broader policy look like when you're actually sort of eking your way through it? And if I can jump in here for a second, you know, one of our goals with this series is to connect the legislation directly to those human stories. And that's why each episode title are lifted from the legislation that established the SIV program or executive orders that affected the program. Um, And that's why episode one is faithful and valuable service. That's something you had to demonstrate in order to get an SIV. All right. So at the highest level of altitude... Without mentioning the word, you actually on the Lawfare podcast, you're totally allowed to mention the essay because this is our nerd podcast, you know, and and so we we're totally down with uh, SIV uh, here. What's the story you're telling? Oh boy, um, you got to have an answer to that. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you got you, you know. Yeah, no, no, of course. The story that we're telling is, in its broadest sense, how America treats its partners abroad, and by partners in this case. For the first few episodes, we really specifically mean these in translators and interpreters that were so essential to what the U.S. was trying to do in stabilize the country and, and build a new government. So in the broadest sense, about it's about that. And, you know, the story that we're trying to tell is basically there was a slow motion evacuation taking place of these interpreters and translators for over a decade before the August withdrawal from the Kabul airport that we saw. And... Hopefully what the series builds to, and we'll leave this to the listeners to decide, is you know, that slow motion evacuation really collided with the rest of the war in Afghanistan at the Kabul airport. You know, in, and it's so rare where you have a historical moment where there's a, a one place where everything was going on. I mean, you know, maybe like the fall of the Berlin Wall and the withdrawal from Saigon could be could be other things, but you know, that is is really the story that we're telling is is trying to tell is is how all of this culminated, um, you know, at the airport in August and, you know, what so many Americans witnessed. Yeah. I, I Just adding to that, I think this story is about what U.S. foreign policy and what U.S. immigration and refugee policy, like what that looks like on the ground, right? What that looks like 
at the point of impact with people that are actually, you know, interacting with it. And even more broadly than that, I think it's about, you know, these goals and ambitions that we try to achieve with foreign policy and with refugee admissions and how those goals and ambitions actually translate to the people that are trying to act upon it. You know, one thing we've heard a lot when people talk about the SIV program is in in theory, it represents some of the best that, you know, immigration policy can offer. It's an opportunity for people who have you know, worked with us uh, abroad to accomplish goals. And this is an opportunity for them to come to the U.S. and sort of sort of further that goal. But of course, in practice, it, it works very differently. So I think it's about taking these these big goals and ambitions, you know, in the policy and, and sort of in the bureaucracy and seeing how we actually sort of shape up to that in practice. When was the SIV program created? And what is the scope of the story, the scope and range of the story you tell about it? So the SIV itself, the special immigrant visa, had actually existed for decades before the U.S. You know, missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. It had traditionally been a tool by which the State Department could reward local embassy employees for, you know, I think when Ambassador Ryan Crocker told us, you know, he had remembered awarding SIVs well before this to embassy employees who had worked for the U.S. for 30 years. And it was a real reward for their for their service, and that's what it was supposed to be. The SIV program that we're talking about in in this series is an expanded SIV, which, you know, as as the listeners will hear in episodes one and two, these interpreters and translators came under threat as the U.S. missions in Iraq and Afghanistan were going very poorly. And Senator Ted Kennedy and others created an expanded SIV that was supposed to be tailored for people under threat. And that happened in 2007, and then the Afghan Allies Protection Act, which really expanded the Afghan SIV program, was in 2009. It sounds great. What's the problem? I'm going to say how much to how long is this podcast? <laughs> yeah, 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 well, you know, we'll explain that in the show, um, but not to give away too much, the program was really never quite tailored to the situation on the ground and the lived experiences of these translators and interpreters. What do I mean by that? I think one of the one of the things that we we try to illustrate very clearly is the security screening process. Obviously the US screens all refugees who come into the United States. In the case of the SIV program, when, you know, and we have former state department officials telling us this in some of the later episodes, but in the case of the SIV program, you know, there was often ambiguous security information around these applicants because they lived in a country where insurgents were, you know, touched every part of life. And so, you know, an interpreter or translator who was applying for an SIV might have previously made a call to someone who later turned out to be a terrorist. And, and, you know, these officials in the State Department and everything didn't really know what to do with that, because is that evidence that they themselves are a terrorist? But, you know, in the, in the in the most broad sense, it was it was really just so many built-in catch twenty twos to this program, and that security screening process that I mentioned is just one of the many that we'll explain in the show. Well, and, and the show is, or the, excuse me, the policy is really sort of at the whims of so many things outside of what it tries to do. Right? It's dependent on the presidential administration, and sort of, you know, does the the sitting president prioritize these kinds of programs? What does Congress do in a year in and year out basis to not only allocate visas, but also what were, what are the vetting processes look like? What does the the pr- actual the processing look like at the State Department? And then separately, it's on the State Department to enact both what Congress and the executive branch is sort of conveying to them. So it both reflects sort of the situation on the ground, the evolving year to year nature of this war, but also just like the actual cogs of our politics. Right? Is this a program we're going to vote resources to? This is a program that even though it has resources to it. You know, does the executive branch think that it should really sort of churn out visas? And so it's a, it's a policy that is at the whims of many things separate from, you know, what the, the, the visa itself is sort of meant to accomplish. And so you see on a year in and year out basis, its effectiveness in actually getting visas, you know, in the hands of interpreters varies drastically depending on, you know, just what's even the debates that are going on here in D.C. So we are going to bring you the first episode of Allies right here. But uh, what do you have to do to get the rest? Look up Allies wherever you get your podcasts um, and keep an eye on the Lawfare feed. We're going to have uh, the first two episodes with the initial drop and then every Monday uh, for the next, goodness, six Mondays, if I remember correctly, we're going to have a new episode, seven episodes total.
So Bryce, tell us what we're going to hear in this first episode. Sure. So in this first episode, we're going to go back to way before the withdrawal in August. The episode opens in August, but, you know, after that opening, we're going to try to hopefully explain to the listeners how important these interpreters and translators were to the initial U.S. invasion of Afghanistan and subsequent effort to to build the country. And you're going to hear from a lot of people. It's, it's our episode with some of the most uh, some of the most voices. You're going to hear from Corey Shockey, who served on the Bush administration's National Security Council. You're going to hear from John McLaughlin, John- then a deputy director of the CIA um, mm-hmm. on September 11th. You'll hear from a variety of reporters that were sort of in Kabul that saw the withdrawal, but also were in Afghanistan at various points during the war. You'll hear uh, from Matt Zeller, who is a veteran and current sort of advocate. And sort of even tied to your earlier question, you know, this first episode really tries tries to show how we discovered the need for these interpreters and translators before the SIV program was really applied to, to that group. We realized we were in a country, we were in a conflict where we needed local partners. And this show is is sort of communicating, okay, before the SIV program was really used, why did we need these interpreters and translators? What role did they serve sort of on the battlefield? Thank you, gentlemen. And uh, for everybody out there, here is episode one of Allies. A warning for listeners. This podcast features stories about war, terrorism, and violence. It's important to hear but it can also be disturbing. After two decades, the U.S. was getting out. President Trump had negotiated a deal with the Taliban, promising a departure of U.S. troops. In spring 2021, President Joe Biden let the whole world know that he wasn't reversing course. American troops would be out of Afghanistan by the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I'm now the fourth United States president to preside over American troop presence in Afghanistan. I will not pass this responsibility onto a fifth. After consulting closely with our allies and partners, I've concluded that it's time to end America's longest war. It's time for American troops to come home. Journalist Matthew Akins was covering the withdrawal for the New York Times. He had been reporting from Afghanistan since 2008. He says with the Americans leaving, nearly every Afghan he talked to had no clue what was in store for them. Some who worked for the U.S. government didn't even know if they'd be able to get out. Others wondered what life would look like if the Afghan government collapsed. So the clock was ticking. People were very anxious, very desperate to leave. But still, very few people had any sense that the end was that near. Rumors of the Taliban's advance had been trickling into Kabul for months. Now, they were closing in on the capital city. Well, I think that the Afghan government was in denial that the Americans were going to leave so quickly. The military was largely concerned with force protection, with covering its own but as it was leaving, and that meant getting out as fast as possible, and that took the Afghans by surprise, definitely. As part of the evacuation effort, the Biden administration announced Operation Allies Refuge, a plan to get at-risk Afghans on flights out of the country. There was one group that was in particular danger. To wage this war, the U.S. had hired thousands of Afghan translators, interpreters, and other local partners. They were often on the front lines with U.S. soldiers. To any Afghan who dealt with the United States, they were the face of the war. Their service made them targets for kidnapping, extortion, and murder by the Taliban. In recognition of their service and the danger they faced, Congress had created a program over a decade earlier. This program would get them resettled in the U.S. These Afghans could apply for something called a special immigrant visa, also known as an SIV. If there was ever a time for this program to kick into gear, it was now. In Kabul, Matt Akins spoke to two Afghan interpreters on August 15th. They both served with U.S. Special Forces and had applied for SIVs. 
They were waiting for years for this visa, jumping through all these bureaucratic loopholes while feeling the Taliban were getting closer and closer. So there was like they were just staying one step ahead of the insurgents. And, you know, they kind of realized at the end that they were going to be left to their own devices. And we were actually sitting there together at lunch talking about this on the afternoon the city fell. Our driver actually came in and he was like, people are saying the Taliban are inside the city. Aiken stepped out and saw armed men walking the streets. He saw members of the Taliban drive into Kabul and captured government Humvees. They were hanging out of the windows, carrying U.S.-made assault rifles, waving their white flags in the wind. Some crowds even cheered them on. That same day as the city was falling, I was getting a lot of messages from former interpreters and other people who were working for the U.S. government and foreigners who were asking me for help, like, how do I get out? How do I get to the airport? As the Taliban rapidly took over Afghanistan, desperate Afghans flocked to one place in Kabul, Hamid Karzai International Airport. There were just a few weeks until the deadline for flights out, August 31st. As each day passed, bigger crowds started to gather at the airport. Eventually, people started flooding the tarmac. Men, women, and children crowded around departing planes. People dangled off jet bridges, trying to force themselves into cabins. We got there and we're like, oh my God, what's happening? There's thousands of people streaming from all directions. At that moment, actually, a U.S. C-17 was taking off on the runway and crushing people to death beneath its wheels. You know, those video images that were broadcast the world. This morning, the flight from Kabul in one stark image. Complete and utter mayhem and chaos today at the Kabul airport. We are now playing out the visuals on your screen. They're images that have shocked the world. Desperate Afghans clinging to a US military plane. Others are seen falling to their death from the undercarriage of a plane as it becomes airborne. The US military locked down the tarmac after that. They started funneling people through an entrance called Abbey Gate. But this airport? wasn't built for a country at peace. It wasn't a facility designed for flowing crowds. The Kabul airport was built to withstand blasts from car bombs and suicide bombers. So it had high concrete walls and narrow passages. Moats, HESCOs, barbed wire, towers, you know, with machine guns in them, sandbags, like it's a, it's a fortress. That kind of defense when you push mobs of people up against it, created death traps. I mean, people would get trampled, would get crushed, they get kind of forced into these choke points. American soldiers were posted at the gate to sort through the crowds, but it was nearly impossible to check for travel documents in the mad rush of bodies. Afghan men and women did anything to get their attention, yelling at the Marines, waving their papers, or even their children in the air. The sight of these bedraggled people, men, women, and children, dusty, you know, weak from dehydration, sitting at the base of these vast concrete structures with soldiers, you know, either Taliban or the CIA-backed paramilitary unit, aiming their assault rifles at them. It was just the most grotesque contrast. It was like something out of science fiction. For weeks, Aikens heard rumors that the terror group ISIS was planning something in Kabul. Then, on August 26th, he was sitting at his house when he heard an explosion. Aiken saw smoke coming from the airport a few miles away. That is the Pentagon confirming there has been an explosion outside Kabul airport where thousands of people have gathered to try to evacuate the country. As the staggering death toll soared to at least 170 Afghan civilians, today it was revealed the attack was carried out by a single bomber believed to be wearing a 25-pound vest of explosives. We can confirm that a number of U.S. service members were killed at the Kabul airport. 
The attack laid bare the chaos of the U.S. withdrawal and accelerated the evacuation. All month, Aikens remembers hearing jet engines hanging over Kabul each night. The noise only got louder as each day passed and more planes weaved in and out. The last flight was on August 30th. Well, I remember that night listening to the sound of aircraft and it seemed more intense than normal. It was everything. You know, you heard the fighter jets, you'd hear drones, you'd hear, for a while, helicopters and C-17s, the C-130s. It was this orchestra of, of intense noises in the sky that were, was kind of maddening because it reminded everyone that the foreigners were leaving. And then, all of a sudden, it went quiet. And... My housemate and I kind of stepped outside and we were listening like, huh, there's no more planes. And that quiet didn't last that long because then we start hearing gunfire. And the gunfire gets more and more intense until it's all around us and we can see like tracers going up in the sky. And it's the Taliban just shooting in the air to celebrate the departure of the last American. From Lawfare and Goat Rodeo, this is Allies, a podcast about how the U.S. government failed its eyes and ears in the war in Afghanistan. I'm your host, Bryce Clem. The U.S. military got thousands of people out of Kabul in August. But despite the decade-long efforts of veterans, lawmakers, and the highest-ranking officials in the military, even more were left behind. Many have gone into hiding, fearful of the Taliban seeking retribution. So how did we end up here? How was the fate of thousands of Afghans decided by which side of a wall they were on? and whether or not they had the right pieces of paper. What happened at the Kabul airport in August was the culmination of 20 years of war. A war where language and those who had access to it shaped the very way it was fought. We were the eyes and ears of U.S. troops in Afghanistan. The Taliban knew all this. That's why they used to shoot at them first. You're literally fighting blind if you do not have those interpreters with you. A war where the U.S. asked translators and interpreters to serve in the line of fire. You will hear from them on this podcast, but we can't use their full names. The Taliban will find them and will kill them. I moved my family from location to location three times. There's no option for us. Some days they will find you. People are going to listen to this and there will be blood spilt back in Afghanistan if we're not careful. We will take you from the front lines to the halls of Congress where lawmakers created a program to protect Afghan allies. We'll tell you how it was supposed to work and how it collapsed in the slow churn of bureaucracy. He was just banging his head against the wall trying to figure out how do I unstick this. The problem was not the idea. The problem wasn't the legislation. The problem was the execution. These things might seem reasonable in Washington, much less reasonable if you're trying to stay alive long enough to get the damn visas we will seek to answer questions that still linger from two decades of war. How did this program fail so many? Over seven episodes, we'll take you through the 20-year war. We'll explain why the SIV program was created at the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. You'll hear from veterans, advocates, journalists, and most importantly, Afghans, who tried to navigate a never-ending bureaucratic maze you'll hear how four presidential administrations supported and ignored America's eyes and ears. And in the end, we'll tell you how these failures culminated in the chaos in Kabul. In this episode, we're going back to the beginning, just before 9-11. This is episode one, Faithful and Valuable Service.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the late 1990s, the terrorist group Al-Qaeda repeatedly attacked U.S. assets, bombing embassies in Africa and a naval ship in Yemen. The United States launched an attack this morning on one of the most active terrorist bases in the world. It is located in Afghanistan and operated by groups affiliated with Osama bin Laden, a network not sponsored by any state, but as dangerous as any we face. A few years later, in the summer of 2001, John McLaughlin was the deputy director of the CIA. He says the agency was flooded with tips from Afghanistan. So the CIA knew al-Qaeda was planning another attack. But we had enormous amount of reporting. It was kind of off the chart in terms of indicators of preparations for some kind of attack by extremists. We believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center in New York. A second plane drove into, and you can see that plane coming around the building and so when the second tower was hit, instantly, of course, I knew this was what we had been expecting. McLaughlin says the rest of that day was a blur. But he does remember connecting with President George Bush via telecom. We made clear that in our judgment, this was an al-Qaeda operation and the one that we had been talking about during the summer in particular. And I, I remember and wrote down what he said. He said, Form a worldwide coalition. We will find them and destroy them. Four days later, on September 15th, the president gathered his national security team at Camp David. They talked about the attack, how it was coordinated, who was behind it. But the question they were there to answer was, what should we do about it? The CIA had come prepared with a thick binder, a spiral-bound booklet I remembered quite well, with a plan we had developed and updated that week was a plan we'd had in preparation for a long time, but it was a plan for attacking al-Qaeda in dozens of countries around the world. And we explained it. Everyone absorbed it. The CIA's plan homed in on al-Qaeda's camps in Afghanistan. President Bush reconvened the group two days later in the White House. McLaughlin remembers him rattling off several decisions the administration's war strategy. President Bush told the military to call up the reserves, the Justice Department to ready warrants and indictments, and Treasury to follow the money. And for the CIA, he said, I'm, basically, I'm adopting your plan. I want you first into Afghanistan as fast as you can be. President Bush spoke to Congress and the American public on September 20th. He told the country about al-Qaeda, the terrorists who many people were hearing about for the first time. They are recruited from their own nations and neighborhoods and brought to camps in places like Afghanistan where they are trained in the tactics of terror. The leadership of al-Qaeda has great influence in Afghanistan and supports the Taliban regime in controlling most of that country. The president also spoke about the Taliban, who called themselves Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. At the time, they were the country's government, a militant Islamic political body. The Taliban sprouted out of Afghanistan's rural Pashtun tribes. That's the country's largest ethnic group. 
Taliban is actually a Pashto word, meaning students. After the Soviet occupation, there was a power vacuum in Afghanistan. So Pashtun leaders started joining forces with former Mujahideen fighters. A civil war ensued. The details are complicated. But Taliban rule offered some security. So their influence spread across the country and took hold in huge parts of Afghanistan's rural provinces. By 1996, the Taliban had grown into a vast political movement. It governed through an austere and harsh vision of Islamic law. A fact President Bush and his administration repeated in the lead up to the war. Women are not allowed to attend school. You can be jailed for owning a television. Religion can be practiced only as their leaders dictate. A man can be jailed in Afghanistan if his beard is not long enough. The United States respects the people of Afghanistan. After all, we are currently its largest source of humanitarian aid. But we condemn the Taliban regime. Osama bin Laden had a long-standing alliance with the Taliban. With the FBI and CIA on his trail, bin Laden was allowed a haven in Afghanistan. So after 9-11, President Bush spoke directly to the Taliban. He demanded they hand over the leaders of al-Qaeda to U.S. authorities and close every terrorist training camp. These demands are not open to negotiation or discussion. Former CIA Deputy Director John McLaughlin again. Within 15 days, we had those two teams on the ground in northern Afghanistan. As I recall, each one had about eight people on it. A fair number of them had the local languages and weapons specialists. Our objective was to get in there as fast as we could on a chopper that was an old Soviet I want to say M-17 helicopter that we flew in from from Uzbekistan through the mountains of northern Afghanistan. Within just a few weeks, about 300 CIA agents and special forces had landed in Afghanistan. They met with sources sprinkled across the country, Afghan village leaders and warlords who pointed them in the direction of bin Laden. McLaughlin described the scene. Uniforms went away. Everyone was dressed in civilian clothes. People were riding horses. It was a remarkable thing. One reason President Bush wanted the CIA first in was because they were the only government agency that knew much about Afghanistan. Everyone has to realize that when this occurred, there weren't many people in Washington who had paid attention to Afghanistan or knew much about it. And I recall in the first, say, the first month after 9-11, I was sending teams of analysts out into Washington to other agencies, carrying maps and doing a briefing on, I would say, the subject of what exactly is Afghanistan. McLaughlin remembers one officer spreading out a map on the blue rug of the Oval Office. He squatted between President Bush and Vice President Cheney, and pointed out Afghanistan's 34 provinces. He told them about the topography, Afghanistan's deserts, river valleys, and snow-capped mountains. They talked about the bordering countries, Pakistan to the southeast, Iran to the west, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan to the north. What immediately became clear was that Afghanistan is a very complicated place. In the fall of 2001, About two months after the first U.S. boots were on the ground, Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld wrote a memo to his staff. He asked them to break down all of the languages spoken in Afghanistan. Persian, Pashto. We have a great deal of language, like we call Pashi, Kyrgyzi, Ubaishi. Farsi or Dari, they're all the same. There are two main languages spoken in Afghanistan, Pashto and Dari, which is complicated enough, and the, you know, Pashto has its own regional subdialects. That last voice you heard is Wesley Morgan. He's a freelance journalist who embedded with U.S. combat troops in Afghanistan. He saw firsthand 
how U.S. forces interacted with the local population. Most Afghans are multilingual and speak Dari or Pashto, but the country has almost 40 million people across cultural, ethnic, and tribal groups. In all, they speak nearly 60 languages. Wesley Morgan was in a place called the Pesh Valley. In the Pesh Valley floor, everybody speaks Pashto. A lot of the security forces speak Dari. But then the farther you go up into these side valleys north and south of the Pesh, you wind up encountering all these other languages, Kalashala, Gambiri or Tregami, Koringali, languages that have no written form and have only a few thousand speakers, which makes them inherently really, really difficult to kind of get a grip on. But when you go up into the northeast of the country in Kunar and Nuristan, there are a bunch of other languages as well, more really than the U.S. military kind of appreciated at the time. So the military needed interpreters, translators, and local partners. Afghans who understood the languages and culture. Over the course of the next 20 years, these interpreters would prove to be essential. The number of local partners the U.S. hired would grow enormously. First tens of thousands, then hundreds of thousands of Afghans. And they'd be right next to U.S. soldiers looking for al-Qaeda, asking locals about them, intercepting terrorist communications, breaking down messages over walkie-talkies. Later, they'd help broker huge government contracts to build roads and schools. Even the words interpreter and translator are too narrow to describe their role. Matt Zeller was a U.S. Army officer who advised Afghan forces. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2008 and fought side-by-side side with several Afghan interpreters and translators. We asked him, what sort of things did they teach him about Afghanistan? Zeller gave us some examples. I'm going to, your audience can't see this, but I'm certainly sitting right now with my legs crossed, right? With my left leg crossed over my right, and the bottom of my left sole is pointing at you. It's one of the worst things I can possibly do is to show you the bottom of the sole of my foot. I'm telling you to fuck off right now in Afghan culture. We Americans cross our legs all the time. I have no idea I'm, t I'm giving you the finger. There is just so much. I mean, if you go and sit into a meeting with somebody in the United States of America, and let's say it's a really important meeting, and you're going to sit around a table, where do you put the two most important people on opposite sides? Do they sit next to each other or across? Across. Yeah, in Afghan culture, they sit next to each other. So, like, it's these little nuances that if you don't know, like, if you were to sit them across from you, it's a big insult. Why? Because you're, you want to build a bond with someone or make a deal. You sit them next to each other so that they can talk and that they're equals. Sit them across from each other, it's adversarial. The, the food, you know, the culture of, like, showing up to a meeting. Here in the United States, you show up to a business meeting, you might have a quick coffee and whatever, and you get down to it. In Afghanistan, you'll talk for 30 minutes about their families before you even come to the matter at hand. To, to rush it along is, is seen as very disrespectful because it's not like you're appreciating their hospitality or just trying to get to the business. What else? Anytime an Afghan family would feed us, if we were in like a village and someone would invite us over to their homes, you know, we'd walk up and be like, wow, we're famished. That was an amazing meal. And the interpreters would pull us aside and be like, do you realize that they fed you everything that they have? They've literally cooked all the food in the house, food that was supposed to last them maybe for the next couple of months. If you don't come back tomorrow with, like, food for this family, they're going to starve. As a number of veterans, journalists, and diplomats would say, these translators were the U.S.'s eyes and ears. But at the start of the war, the U.S. had none. Because we had not expected to fight a war in Afghanistan, you had an incredible dearth of expertise on the country, an incredible dearth of language skills. That's Corey Shockey. She was on the National Security Council during President Bush's first term. I bet there were less than 20 people in the American National Security Establishment who had the language abilities to help navigate the societies in Afghanistan. We were utterly dependent on our interpreters and translators. And that need for local partners was about to grow the CIA and special forces operators would soon be joined by thousands of American soldiers. Less than a month after 9-11, President Bush announced Operation Enduring Freedom. Now, U.S. Marines were joining the fight. On my orders, 
the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. Donald Rumsfeld would later call this a new kind of war, a war that wouldn't be fought by conventional armies. Instead, an international coalition would wage it quietly, fighting in the shadows against terrorist cells. Secretary Rumsfeld, you know, viewed himself as a revolutionary in this regard. I remember once hearing him tell the president, these generals, they're dinosaurs. They think it takes a quarter million troops to do anything. you got to help me push us forward into the modern ways of war. This modern war meant night raids and clandestine missions ending with airstrikes. But of course, that style of warfare is great for punitive raids. It's great for many things. It is poorly suited to stabilizing a country and holding territory in that country. And it's poorly suited to being a supportive and protective force for a population. Within just a few months, the international coalition swept through Afghanistan. By November, it captured the capital city of Kabul. U.S. forces spent the winter chasing al-Qaeda, bin Laden, and the Taliban toward the Pakistani border. But with the perpetrators of 9-11 still out there, Shaki says the war changed. The Bush administration thought the war in Afghanistan wouldn't require lots of American troops. But she says it turned out to be a bigger commitment than they expected. Creating safety throughout the country was going to require a magnitude of forces that the United States did not want to provide. And so we wanted to build an Afghan military that could increasingly take over the military responsibilities that the United States was performing in Afghanistan. So after the smoke settled from initial combat operations, the U.S. military was now in a country with no government. And many inside the Bush administration worried that Afghanistan would again become a terrorist haven. So the president gave a speech in April 2002 that outlined a change in mission. We know that true peace will only be achieved when we give the Afghan people the means to achieve their own aspirations. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan develop its own stable government. Peace will be achieved by helping Afghanistan train and develop its own national army. And peace will be achieved through an education system for boys and girls, which works. So the U.S. mission was growing into a nation-building one, and every single part of it was going to require interacting with the Afghan people. Whether that meant fighting the Taliban or opening new schools or even building an entire army from scratch, the U.S. forces would need more translators, interpreters, and advisors. The war in Afghanistan was going to need more resources. But then the Bush administration found a distraction. Here's Corey Shockey again. I would say the Bush administration had persuaded itself that Afghanistan didn't require any more attention or resources than we were giving it, which is not the same thing as having one. So the Bush administration started planning another invasion. High-ranking officials had been ringing the alarm on Saddam Hussein, the dictator of Iraq. They said Saddam was as big a threat to the U.S. as Osama bin Laden. And some even sought to connect Saddam to al-Qaeda. We could not accept the grave danger of Saddam Hussein and his terrorist allies turning weapons of mass destruction against us and gradually 
we are learning the details of his hidden weapons program. A regime that harbors ambitions for regional domination, hides weapons of mass destruction, and provides haven and active support for terrorists. So in March 2003, the U.S. invaded Iraq with more than 150,000 American soldiers. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. And this new campaign would require more translators and interpreters. Next time on Allies, we'll head to Iraq, and you'll hear from one interpreter who saw the invasion up close. Allies was created, written, and produced by the show's lead producers, Max Johnston and me, Bryce Clem. Ben Wittes is our executive producer, mixing and additional editing from Rebecca Seidel. Production and editorial assistance from Ian Enright, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Kara Schillen, and Megan Nadolsky. Theme music and scoring from Max Johnston. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. Senior producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. At Lawfare, editorial support from Natalie Orpet, Catherine Pompilio, Claudia Swain, and Scott Anderson. A special thanks to Matthew Akins, Wesley Morgan, and his book, The Hardest Place, John McLaughlin, Matt Zeller, and Corey Shockey. Allies is a production from Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Please rate and review the show. It helps spread the word. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.